Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 27 through 36 this morning. John, chapter 12, verses 27 through 36 as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. And as you turn there, let us go to the Lord and pray and ask His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We know that it is useful and beneficial to us for correction and rebuke. You have inspired every word of it. And we pray, Lord, this morning that You might use it in our hearts to change us and to guide and direct us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord now from John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. May God bless the reading of His holy an errant and infallible word, and let His church say, Amen. Stars don't shine forever. Scientists tell us that when a star begins to use up its hydrogen in its core, the core begins to collapse on itself. This increases the heat in the core and causes the star itself to expand and cool on the outer layer, changing the color of the star from yellow into something called a red giant. These stars, scientists tell us, will eventually explode, shedding off their outer layer of energy and leaving behind a cocoon of gas and dust. Absent of any sort of 
miraculous creation account, these same scientists think that the earth's sun will burn out one day. They think that it is approximately 5 billion years old. And it has used up half of its shelf life. So, don't want to cause you a lot of anxiety, but the sun only has 5 billion years left to burn up. They think it will eventually run out of energy, cooling and expanding into a red giant, becoming 2,000 times brighter than it is right now. And then it will die and cease to exist five billion years from now. In the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus is described as the light of the world who shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the true light who gives light to everyone. The darkness of the world hates this light, lest their works be exposed. However, the Gospel tells us whoever does what is true comes to the light. During the Feast of Tabernacles, amongst the festive light ceremony there in Jerusalem, Jesus declared what? Of Himself. I am the light of the world. And whoever follows Me does not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, Jesus says. As we consider this passage before us today, we are reading what is essentially the end of Jesus' public ministry. Depending on where you draw the division in John's Gospel, some make the division in chapter 11, some make the division in chapter 12. Makes little difference to me, but we are about to see a noted shift in John's Gospel away from what has been called the book of signs, right? Where Jesus is doing signs, and we are about to move into a section of John's Gospel scholars often refer to as the book of glory that leads Jesus to the cross. Jesus is speaking about that here, isn't He? He will soon depart from the world, and when He does, the light of the world will depart. Jesus is going to do something before He departs. He is going to ignite a burning beacon from the cross that will shine for all humanity. It will never be extinguished as long as this world is here. It will display God's glory in such a way it will burn throughout time so that all who look to the glory that comes from the cross might be saved. And if you're a Christian this morning, you have beheld the glory of God shining forth from the cross, haven't you? In fact, we know this to be true that The glory of salvation shines the brightest from the cross. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And that's what we're going to see in this next section of John's Gospel in the book of glory. That the glory of salvation, it shines the brightest from the cross. If anyone looks upon the the glory of that light, he will be saved. He will be set free from sin. He will receive the true light of life. Darkness will be eradicated from his heart. The scales of sin that blind the eyes will will fall by the wayside. 
the glory of salvation, it shines the brightest from the cross. Well, if the glory of God's salvation shines the brightest from the cross, why then does the cross appear to be such foolishness to those who are perishing? Jesus provides an explanation for that here in this passage of why the cross is such an enigma to those who are lost. Look with me here in this passage. I want you to see that the cross, number one, the cross appears to be full of darkness. The cross appears to be full of darkness. Look with me at verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. Why is Jesus' soul troubled? What is Jesus referring to? Well, in the last section, we, we saw where the Gentiles have come to Jesus. And all throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has been saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then the Gentiles come to see Jesus. And Jesus says... In verse 23, you can look up there in your Bibles at verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So it is this seeking, the Gentiles seeking Jesus, seeking a meeting with Jesus, coming to Jesus that triggers in God's providence the hour to have arrived. And Jesus is picking up on that here in verse 27. That is the now that He's referring to. Now that the hour is here, Jesus' soul is what? Look at verse 27. His soul is troubled, Jesus says. Why is his soul troubled? He's going to go to the cross. The, the pain of the cross. The shame of the cross. Jesus knows full well. And it is weighing down upon our Savior. And his soul is troubled. So what will Jesus do? Will Jesus turn away from the cross? Will Jesus refuse to go to the cross? No, look at what He says. Jesus prays here. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? The, the question's rhetorical, isn't it? The answer is implicit. No sooner can Jesus ponder that question, he, he cannot bear the thought. Absolutely not. He will not pray and ask the Father to deliver him from the pain of the cross. No. Jesus explains in verse 27, for this purpose I have come to this hour. What is Jesus saying? This is the reason why I am here. I have come into this world to go to the cross. The signs that I've been doing have been paving the way for the cross. The teachings that He's given, they have been paving the way for the cross. All roads, all paths for Jesus lead to the cross. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 27. This is His purpose. This is why He has come into the world to go to the cross. And so all that Jesus can say is, what? Verse 28, Father, glorify Your name. The cross will appear to be full of shame. The cross will appear to be full of reproach. The cross will appear to be full of darkness. 
Jesus will be mocked and beaten and, and ridiculed and placed upon the cross for all the world to look upon Him and to scorn Him. And Jesus is saying here, that is what glorifies God. It's an enigma, isn't it? It's difficult for us to grasp. It's difficult for us to understand that Jesus going to the cross could bring glory to the Father, and yet, God the Father reaffirms this to Jesus. Look at verse 27. There's a voice that comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Everything that Jesus has been doing has been bringing glory to God the Father. Every miracle, every sign, every teaching, every thought, every decision, every interaction with every person, everything that Jesus has done has been glorifying the Father. And here, God the Father reaffirms that Jesus' path to the cross, His suffering on the cross, will in fact bring glory to God. It won't bring shame. He won't shame the Father in what He's doing. It will bring glory to God. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus need to hear God say this? I mean, Jesus is omniscient, isn't He? Isn't He one with the Father? Isn't He able uh, to have perfect fellowship with the Father? Why does He need to hear God the Father say this? Well, Jesus explains here that He, in fact, didn't need to hear God the Father say this. Look with me here at verse 29. The crowd that stood there heard it and said what? It's thundered. They hear a voice. It's thundered. And some even conclude that an angel has spoken to Jesus. John is here perhaps wanting us to think about Exodus chapter 19 where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and and God comes down in His glory upon the mountain. And when He speaks to the Israelites, the sound of thunder comes forth. And now here, one greater than Moses has come. And he receives the Word of God. And he too is the mediator for God's people. And now, instead of looking upon his glory for fear of pain of death, now they can look upon God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus answers them in verse 30, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus wants them to know what He's going to do on the cross is going to bring God glory. Back in the mid-5th century, there was a false teaching called Nestorianism. It was taught by Nestorius, who was a bishop. He taught that Jesus had two natures. He was right about that. That Jesus had a divine nature and Jesus had a human nature and and Nestorius was right in that. But where he was wrong was that Nestorius said that these two natures of Jesus existed in two separate persons. And that the only connection between the human person and the divine person was a sort of moral connection between the two of them. It wasn't a connection of being or ontology for Jesus. It that didn't have anything to do with his person, but rather they were 
two separate persons in Jesus. So, when Jesus did a miracle or a sign, who was doing it? The divine person. But when Jesus was hungry and, and was tired, and when He suffered upon the cross, who did those things? Well, the human person was doing that. Not the divine person. This was the human person. And so these two persons of Jesus held each nature in division from one another. The problem with this teaching is that if Jesus is not fully God and fully man in one person, He cannot sustain the wrath of God upon the cross. His humanity will not be able to sustain it. Furthermore, if Jesus is not fully God and fully man, He cannot give worth to what He's going to do upon the cross. He can't satisfy divine justice. He can't purchase salvation for humanity as the second Adam. And there's no bodily hope of the resurrection, is there? Jesus is dead and still in the grave. And so the council of Chalcedon met together and they concluded that the teaching of Scripture was this, that the two persons, the two natures, not existed in the two natures existed in one person, not two persons, without confusion, without change, without separation, that each nature is preserved in one single person, not in parts, not in divisions, in what is called the hypostatic union. Fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. And so you're sitting here and you're asking yourself, Pastor, what on earth does that have to do with anything for me that can help me and benefit me as I go to lunch? Well, the difference that this makes is that you and I need to know that Jesus really and truly suffered for the penalty of our sins. He really and truly paid the full price for our sins. Furthermore, He did not exempt Himself in any way. Jesus here in verse 27 is in agony about what is going to take place at the cross. When Jesus is unjustly charged, He doesn't defend Himself. When Jesus is beaten by the soldiers, He doesn't cause them to fall down to their knees and command their worship. And when Jesus is nailed to the cross, He doesn't call upon 10,000 leagues of angels to come and rescue Him. No. He didn't exempt Himself in any way from the agonies and the shame of the cross. He took the, the cup of God's wrath, as the Scripture says, and He drank every last drop of it. You see, the glory of salvation, it shines the brightest from the cross. The cross appears to be full of darkness to those who are perishing, but for those of us who are being saved, that cross is precious, isn't it? Well, how does the glory of salvation shine the brightest from the cross? Jesus explains that here in this passage. I want you to see here, number two, 
Salvation is accomplished at the cross. Salvation is accomplished at the cross. Look at verse 31. What does Jesus say here? He begins to explain what will happen at the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. You see, the cross displays God's judgment. How does it display God's judgment? Well, those who have rejected Jesus prove their hearts are hardened towards the salvation of God that has been offered to them because they crucify the Lord of glory. So in their wicked, evil actions, they are declaring themselves guilty before a holy God. And so Jesus going to the cross, it displays God's judgment upon those who crucify the Savior. But not only does it display God's judgment in that way, it also displays judgment because the judgment of God is being poured out upon Jesus. The very people who deserve God's wrath by Jesus going to the cross and bearing the judgment of God, they can be forgiven of their sins. And so Jesus says here that His going to the cross, it does what? Well, it brings in judgment in this world. Number two, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus going to the cross casts down the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world is who? It's is Satan. He ensnares us in our sins, doesn't he? Deceives us in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses in our, and in our sins. We, we are unable to desire that which glorifies God. And so we are under the dominion of Satan. But Jesus going to the cross, Jesus says here that it brings down the ruler of this world. Thirdly, verse 32, and I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, pause right there, here's the third point, Jesus going to the cross, it brings Him glory. It lifts Jesus up from the earth. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 says that the Messiah, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And so ironically, Jesus is lifted up upon the cross in shame and scorn of man, but He's lifted up upon the cross for all the world to the glory of God. Let's continue on. Fourthly, the cross, look here at verse 32, will draw all people to Himself. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert that all who might look upon it and be healed, so too when the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men unto Him. And that's what Jesus is saying here again in John chapter 12. When He is lifted up upon the cross, He will draw all men unto Him. Well, is Jesus saying, Jesus teaching here universalism? Is Jesus saying that all people will be saved? No. Let's put this verse in context. Who has come to Jesus? The Gentiles have come seeking Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here, is that because He goes to the cross, all manner of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be drawn to the Gospel, drawn to this good news 
of Jesus Christ because He's been lifted up that all might look unto Him and receive salvation. And lastly, let me draw your attention to two words. The cross inaugurates the end time. So the cross is the beginning of the end. So you hear people say, oh, we're living in the end times. Yes, last 2,000 years, we have been living in the end time. Jesus going to the cross ushers in the end time. The, the now in verse 27, the hour that is used here, it is full of eschatology. It is a work of Jesus that begins upon the cross and is awaiting its final consummation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Verse 33, Jesus explains that this was to show what kind of death He was going to die. So just in case there's any wonder for us, John includes this little note that all of what's being said here is about the death of Jesus. I read a humorous story in the news recently about a man. He uh, was taking care of his parents' home in California. His father had died and his mother had to be moved out of the home. That's not the funny part. I'm getting to the funny part, okay? In the state of California, there's squatter rights. You've heard about these squatter rights that people can just show up at a vacant house and move in and be granted a period of time under law living in the house. And so the son, taking care of his parents' affairs, put this home on the market and someone contacted him interested in the house. And then she just, knew, knowing that the house was vacant, just helped herself. She got a moving truck and broke into the house and moved into the house. And so the son contacted the police and said, this person is trespassing. They have no right to be there. And the police said, squatter's rights. There's, there's nothing that we can do about it. So the man decided that he would draft up a lease agreement between he and his mother, I'm sure for a very cheap sum of money, and he went to the house and parked. He got there early in the morning and parked and waited for those people to leave. And then, and then with the key, he went into the house and moved in. And when the people returned to their house, he said, I have squatter's rights. In this house, you have to leave. So he called the police and said, Remove these people. They are infringing upon my squatter's rights in my parents' home. And they moved and departed from the house. You say, Pastor, what does that have to do with anything? The Lord of Heaven owns this whole world, doesn't He? It is His. He created it. And when sin entered this world... Satan assumed to himself squatter's rights. He brought into this world sin and death, sickness, shame, hardship, and suffering. And what Jesus has done is He has come in the flesh to give Satan an eviction notice. That Satan no longer has squatter's rights 
in this world. That sin has no place. That this world is owned by His Father and that His going to the cross, it defeats death, hell, and the grave. And so, Satan has to get out because he has no squatter's rights. You say, well, pastor, isn't there still sin in this world? I still struggle with sin in my own heart. Well, let me tell you, dear one, Sin has no squatter's rights in your heart or mine. Our Savior has conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's gone to the cross to secure our salvation. And now, sin has no squatter's rights in our, in our hearts, so don't give sin a room to live in. If your heart's like mine, you might have to confess that you are far too comfortable with the sin that is squatting in the house, in your home. You and I keep company with our sin, don't we? We confine our sin to a a little room and we think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a a little closet in my house and and I'll put my my sin over there and and I know that my sin is there and I can go and have conversation with my sin and fellowship with my sin anytime I want to, but the sin's confined to such a small room in my house, it, it doesn't really make any difference. What's the big deal? What you need to understand from John chapter 12 is that sin has no squatter's rights in the house of our hearts. Kick sin out. Fight sin with every fiber of our being. Don't make friends with that nuisance. Don't give a small room. Kick it to the curb. You say, well, why? Our salvation has been accomplished at the cross. The glory of salvation shines the brightest from the cross because salvation has been accomplished there and sin has been defeated and Satan has been defeated. And now you and I are able to kick sin to the curb. Thirdly, I want you to see here that if sin has been accomplished at the cross, we're called to action then. We're called to walk in the light that shines from the cross. That's what Jesus is calling His followers to do here in this passage. Look with me as those who hear all of this, they're interacting with Jesus, and they begin to inquire of Him the kind of Savior that He is. They have all sort of expectations that they ask of Jesus. Look at verse 34. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. Jesus is here speaking of His death, and they understand that. And so they're perplexed. How can you on the one hand say that you're the Messiah, and on the other hand, talk about your death? Isn't the Messiah to remain forever? How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus, rather than explaining Christology that is clear from the Old Testament, calls them to faith. Look here with me at verse 35. Jesus says to them, the light is among you a little while longer. Jesus is calling them to faith. He is there with them now. He is teaching them now. He has shown them the miracles. It is now. And so the light is present with them, but Jesus won't be with them forever. He's saying. 
What must they do? Walk while you have the light. Walk while you have the light. Make a decision now, Jesus is saying. Put your faith in me as the Messiah, Jesus is saying. Walk while you have the, night, the, the light, or else darkness will overtake you. You will be conquered by darkness, Jesus is saying. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. Jesus is saying, if you don't walk in the light, you will be lost in this world. So walk in the light. While you have the light, verse 36, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Notice the repetition of light here. What's Jesus calling them to do? He's calling them to have faith, to put their trust in Him, to believe in Him, not to postpone it, to do so now. And then Jesus does something that is really perplexing. It's there at the end of verse 36. In fact, some of your Bibles probably start a new paragraph right in the middle of verse 36. Don't do that. This is all one passage of Scripture. It should all be understood together. Look at what Jesus does at the end of verse 36. When Jesus has said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Jesus acts in parable what He has just given them in instruction. This is the height of Jesus' popularity. This is the height of Jesus' ministry. The crowds, the multitudes have come to Him. Even the Gentiles are coming to seek Jesus. But He won't, won't be with them forever. And to demonstrate that, Jesus does what? He withdraws from them and hides Himself from them that they might not be able to find Him. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus explains the suddenness of His return. Jesus tells us that no man knows the day or the hour in which Jesus will return. And Jesus gives analogies of what it will be like. It will be like the days of Noah when, when the floods of judgment were impending and people lived their lives as if they had nothing threatening them. They were married and gave themselves into marriage. They, they lived their lives with no change, not knowing that God's flood of judgment was impending upon them. It's also like five foolish brides who are waiting for the bridegroom to come, and, and rather than being prepared and having all the oil that they need in their lamp, they are neglectful and they're not watchful. And, and why they are away, the, the groom comes and they are not there. They are not ready. Jesus' return will also be like a master who has entrusted gifts or talents to his servants. And he goes off on a trip and, and some use the gifts and talents to advance the kingdom of their master, but one takes that talent and, and hides it in the ground and, and the master returns suddenly and he has nothing to show for it. And Jesus says, we don't know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. He's saying that today is the day of salvation. The light shines from the cross today. Have faith today. Make a decision today. Look to Jesus today. Don't postpone. Don't delay it, is what Jesus is saying. And yet some delay, don't they? 
have all sorts of reasons why they delay putting faith in Christ. Some children delay because they think that this teaching is is all for their parents, it's not applicable to them, but today is the day of salvation for little boys and girls, isn't it? Young people, they delay putting their faith in Jesus, wanting to have a time where they can be their own person and, and rule their own lives rather than submitting to God. But today is the day of salvation. Parents with young children might delay their commitment to God and, and leading their families in righteousness and holiness because life just seems too busy and one day life will slow down and then we'll be able to get our priorities right. But today is the day of salvation. Retirees will delay making that decision. They justify it to themselves, thinking that they've worked all their lives and now they finally have a chance to to check some boxes off their bucket list and after they've done some things on their bucket list, then later on they'll, they'll get right with God. You and I don't know the day or hour of Jesus' return. You and I don't know the day or hour of our death. You and I don't know the day or hour when we will be called to give account for our lives. The glory of salvation, it shines the brightest from the cross. And today we are called to look to the cross. Have you done that? Have you looked to the cross? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The cross might appear to be full of darkness for you, but salvation has been accomplished for you on the cross. Walk in the light shining from the cross. The glory of salvation, it shines the brightest from the cross. But one day, the glory that shines from the cross will be eclipsed by another glorious display from God. On that day, it will profit a man nothing to have gained the whole world, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels and the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. On that day, the sun will truly cease to shine. And the skies will be rolled up like a scroll. And God will flood the earth with the fire of His judgment. Have you looked to Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? I pray that today is the day of salvation for you if you haven't. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we have heard Your call to look unto You to put our faith in You. We pray this morning that You would Open the hearts of those who are hardened toward You, who are far from You. We pray that You would grant repentance this morning to little boys and girls. We pray that You would grant repentance to rebellious teenagers. We pray that You would grant repentance to busy parents with raising children. We pray that You would grant repentance to those who are in the twilight of their years who are delaying for tomorrow what they should do today. We pray, Lord, that today would be the day 
of salvation. We pray, Lord, that for those of us who have put our faith and trust in You, that as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, that You would set apart these common and ordinary elements and use them for a holy purpose, that we might persevere. That we might continue in the faith that You have gifted us with. That we would not be overcome by evil, but that we would overcome evil by good. That the darkness would not overtake us. Use communion this morning as a means of grace to strengthen our devotion to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.